Well, good morning. You know, July 30th, 1999, uh, the box office released a movie that quickly became uh, a smash hit, taking the number one spot for quite some time. This movie was about a woman named Maggie Carpenter who had a series of serious relationships. Each of these relationships ended, however, in the groom being left at the altar. It seems as though Maggie had a serious problem with commitment and she would take off running every time things would get difficult. If you haven't guessed by now, the name of the movie was called Runaway Bride. Well, you know, for the next three weeks, uh, we are uh, going to start a series through the book of Jonah. And uh, we're, we're really just going to... Uh, kind of dive into this story. And the story of Jonah is a story of a guy who is running from his relationship with God. Yet the truth is the story of Jonah is really also could be said it's a a story of us. It's a story of us. And uh, every one of us have found ourselves at some point really running from God. Perhaps some of you feel like you're running from him right now. And it's crazy, right? Because the very best thing we could ever do with our lives is to walk with God. And yet the truth is, I found this to be the case in my life, is that on more than one occasion, I found myself running from God. You see, people all throughout history have found themselves running from their creator. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it says they tried to hide from God. And what we're going to see in this book, what we're going to see through the story of Jonah is that while you can run from God, you can't outrun God. By the time we get to this story uh, of, of Jonah, God's people, they were in the middle of a civil war. There was no longer just Israel, Uh, now there was the north uh, and the south. There was Israel in the north, and then there was Judah in the south. Now, why was there a division? Well, the short uh, answer to that is because the people of God were running from God. They they were running from a relationship with him. They weren't doing uh, what God had called them to do. Now, Jonah was a prophet of God in the northern kingdom, uh, and that was uh, in the reign of Jeroboam II, which puts him uh, kind of as a contemporary to other prophets uh, in, uh, in, in that being uh, Amos and Hosea. But the prophet's job, uh, the prophet's job in the Bible was to call people back into a relationship with God. So hopefully you begin to see the irony in this story of Jonah. The irony in this book is that Jonah's job was to remind people of God's goodness and then to call them back to him, to call them to repent of their sins. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Jonah's background uh, outside of this book. It, It just simply starts by saying this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, Amittai means truth. Jonah is the son of truth. And the truth 
that we will see is pretty simple. That God uses broken, sinful people to accomplish his purposes. Think about this. Broken, sinful people is all God has to work with. No matter how far Jonah ran, no matter how far you and I try to run from God, he can still use us when we turn to him. If you're not dead, God's not done with you. So here's the thing. If you can understand the book of Jonah, you can really kind of understand the Bible because, because Jonah is really kind of like the cliff notes in some aspect to the, to the Bible as a whole. It's a story about people running from a God and a God that pursues his people because he loves us. Now, as a prophet, Jonah is unique in that he is the only one of all the prophets who was called to go to God's enemies. Other prophets would go to God's called out people. Other prophets would be sent to, to the nation of Israel and to, and to call God's people out of their rebelliousness, to remind them of the goodness of God, and to call them back into a relationship with God. But that's not the case with Jonah. Jonah is called to go to God's enemies. Verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. You see, God is calling Jonah to go to the enemy, to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a fortified city, uh, and for a time it was the capital of Assyria. Now, here the NIV translates this to preach against preach against the city. It says its wickedness has come up before him, so preach against it. But perhaps a better uh, suited translation, maybe a little more literal, is to inform them of their wickedness and how it has become known to God. The Living Bible says this, as it stinks to the highest heaven. In other words, preach to them that their wickedness stinks to the highest heaven, that it has reached God and God is aware of their wickedness. So God is sending Jonah to warn the Ninevites to repent because their sin is repulsive to God. Now you need to understand that the Assyrians were known for their brutality. Archaeology actually has confirmed uh, what the Bible has said all along. It was not unusual for the Assyrians to rip the limbs and hands off of its victims, to, to fillet pregnant women uh, alive and, and make great piles of their skulls. You see, next to uh, Babylon, they were first class in the art of cruelty and brutality. And so God tells Jonah, don't go to Israel, don't go to my people, but go to the Israelites' enemies and warn them. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, think about God coming to you and telling you to go to the worst possible place imaginable. Uh, uh, imagine if, you know, God came to you and said, uh, I want you to go to ISIS. I want you to go right into the stronghold of, uh, of these people and preach the gospel. Uh, I want you to go to Pittsburgh. I want you to go to Steeler country, right? Just, just kidding. Maybe, maybe. But that's what God is doing here to Jonah. He says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to them. And so what does Jonah do? 
does what oftentimes we do. He runs. Verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying that fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He runs 2,500 miles to Spain, or at least he tried. Spain was basically, uh, at this time, would have been the end of the known world. So in other words, Jonah doesn't just run from God. He runs as far as he possibly can from God. I guess if you tell yourself it's possible to to run from God, uh, I guess the most logical thought then that you would have is that to run from God will require that you run as far as possible you possibly can. And so that's what Jonah does. But as I said, if you understand Jonah, you you begin to understand kind of part of the Bible uh, as a whole because that humanity runs from God, but God pursues humanity. That you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. Now, many people believe that the reason that Jonah is running from God is because he was scared for his life. I mean, that's a logical thought, right? He's scared of the Assyrians. He's scared that if he goes to Nineveh, that they're going to grab him and they're going to fillet him and they're going to pull his limbs out. That's a logical thought. But the truth is, we know why Jonah is running because he tells God, actually in chapter four of this book, in verse two, he says, so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn your back from destroying people. That's why Jonah ran. He ran because he did not fear the Assyrians as much as he hated them. He didn't hate the Assyrians as much as he loved Israel. You see, Jonah's nationalism trumped his monotheism, his love for the one and only God. In other words, his politics trumped his religion. You know, I I don't mind following you, God, as, as long as you're a Democrat. I don't mind following you, God, as as long as you're a Republican. And what we see Jonah do is something that all of us have done, I would say, from time to time. He, he begins to compartmentalize his life, where he's like, you know, I, I have my professional life here, and I have my family life here, and my church life here, and my sex life over here, and yet God doesn't work like that. Our love for our God, our relationship with him is to be carried into every aspect of our lives. You know, the church in our culture has taken a a lot of hits for being intolerant. Church people have done some pretty crazy things in the name of Jesus that just doesn't line up with what Christ desires of his people. The fact is, however, is that Christianity is very inclusive. You see, no matter how sinful, no matter how far you have run from God, God is always there pursuing us, calling us back into a relationship with him. It's good news for all people. 
See, Jesus teaches love for our enemies. The book of Jonah reminds us that God's grace is free. It's free, but it's, it's costly. That's the hard thing. It's costly. I know what God says about purity, but I will follow God if I can still do dot, dot, dot. I know what God says about giving, but, you know, I, I will give to God if I dot, dot, dot. I will obey God unless it doesn't make sense. And you see, that's what Jonah was doing. He was saying, I will obey you, God, as long as I can maintain my authority over you. But that's sin. See, sin is self-authority. I trust my heart. But here's the thing. When you deny God's authority, you will begin to doubt God's goodness, which causes you to ignore God's guidance. And you know this is true, right? When, when, when you don't experience God's goodness, isn't this true? You don't want anyone to experience God's goodness, and especially your enemies. If they don't believe like I do, vote like I do, think like I do, then they don't deserve to experience God's goodness. Now remember, Israel is already weakened. They're, you know, they're in the midst of a civil war. They're fighting among themselves. Assyria has grown mighty and strong. And I think Jonah is just kind of thinking, you know, if I'm kind to my enemy... Well, this isn't going to go so well for my country. It's not going to go so well to my country. And so Jonah runs. And in refusing to go to the pagans, yet another twist of irony, he ends up with he, he ends up with a group of pagans. Now, what do I mean by pagans? They were polytheists. Poly meaning many, theist meaning God. He was running away from the heathen pagans, refusing to preach to them, but he ended up preaching to some inadvertently anyway while he was stuck on a boat. Verse 4 of chapter 1. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his own God, and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. So here's this huge storm, and this storm has come, and it's terrifying. Get this, it's terrifying the professional sailors. That should say something about this storm. In fact, the language used here that the ship threatened to break up is really in the Hebrew. It's a personification of the ship. It's like the ship came to life and it's saying something that, it's saying that if something is not done here, God is going to tear this ship apart. That even creation is recognizing the absurdity here of this storm. The absurdity of trying to run from God. It says the Lord sent a great wind. It means he threw it. You know, like you would throw a, a spear. He threw this storm onto the sea and it came upon them in such a way that these sailors recognized some God is behind all of this. And they begin to pray, but to no avail. Where's Jonah? He's asleep at the bottom of the boat. When they don't know what else to do, they remember, hey, this guy told us that he is running from his God. Let's wake him up, ask him to pray with us. 
And so they do just that. Verse 6, the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots. Find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all of this? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? In verse 9, it says, He answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I want to stop right here for a moment, point out something that happens all the time. You see, Jonah has compartmentalized his faith. And when you compartmentalize your faith, you quarantine your obedience. You see, Jonah claims here in verse 9 to worship the one true God, Yahweh. He makes a claim that he is a monotheist, but he's living his life as a polytheist. He says he worships the one true God, but he's living his life as if he is his own God. So you can either live your life under God's authority, or you can place yourself over God's authority. Yet here's the thing, being your own God will crush you. Being your own God will crush you. It's a recipe for suicide. It's a recipe for depression. Everyone else is afraid for their life. What is Jonah doing? He's sleeping. I'm just going to sleep it off. You seen anyone in depression like that? You see, the answer to the sailor's problem is answered by Jonah himself. He says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it'll calm down. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So most of you know what happens next, right? You've heard the story perhaps in Sunday school classes. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now let me just say this. It's unfortunate, I think, that people discredit the book of Jonah simply uh, because of this verse that says a big fish swallowed Jonah and he stayed there for three days and three nights. So I want to give you three reasons, three reasons why I believe this book to be a historical, literal account. And the first is simply the fact that we believe in a God that created the heavens and the earth, that he created everything that we see and he created it from nothing. Our faith is centered around a guy who died and three days later came back to life. If all of this is true, then is it really all that hard to conceive that this is a possibility as well? But secondly, when Jesus spoke of Jonah in the New Testament, he gave no indication that this was uh, allegory, uh, that this was allegoric in nature or that it was just uh, in the form of a parable. Right? Simply, if it was good enough for Jesus, then it should be good enough for us. But lastly, if Jonah is a non-historical event, as many claim, then it only became so in the 19th century. Prior to that, everyone believed this story was describing a literal historical event. Just saying. But however one believes this 
message to be uh, historical or uh, allegorical in nature. It doesn't change the message of the story of Jonah for us, except in the fact that if it really happened, it, one might be more inclined uh, to, to act with more urgency in regards to obedience. And just like that, with Jonah being swallowed by this big fish, Chapter 1 comes to a close. Chapter 2 opens with Jonah in the belly of this big fish. Uh, and we move from a, a, a narrative type of writing uh, to, a, to a, a poetic uh, type of writing, to a psalm or a, a song. And this is the song that Jonah sings. This is the song that he prays. Now, have you ever found yourself trying to accomplish something only to try every possible thing you can think of to bring about the outcome that you want and you finally find yourself saying, you know what, the only thing I can think left to do is pray, right? And then some like super like churchy religious person is like, well, you know, prayer should have been the first thing that you started with, right? And you're like, shut up. But the fact is, Jonah's tried everything. He tried running, he, he tried it his own way, and it got him in the belly of a fish. And so he decides, you know what? All right. God, it's you and me. Let's, let's have this conversation after all. And he sings this song of repentance. Chapter 2. He says this, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from, the, from, from deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy people and engulfing waters, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. To the, the earth beneath bared me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. He remembered the Lord remembered me and my prayer rose to your holy temple. You see, when the Israelites sinned, they would offer a sacrifice at the temple. And once a year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, a high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice to atone for God's, uh, for the, the people's sin. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there were three things that were placed in the ark, the stone tablet of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, uh, and Aaron's budding staff. And it's possible that Jonah was thinking about this in the belly of this large fish. I mean, have you read the Ten Commandments lately? The very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, he blew that, right? Blew that. I mean, just thinking about them should indicate to us that our very lives right now is an act of God's grace. It's an act of His grace that we don't deserve to live. But then there was Aaron's budding staff. You see, God calls this staff to bud when He chose Aaron. Aaron 
was chosen to function as the high priest, the go-between between God and humanity. But the grace of God can be seen in the fact that he chose Aaron, you know, the one who led the Hebrews into idol worship while Moses was up gathering the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And now he functions as this mediator between uh, God and man. What grace was given. And that staff is a reminder of the rebelliousness of the people. And then there was this jar of manna. This was food that was miraculously um, uh, provided to the Israelites as they made their way out of Egypt and as they wandered around in the wilderness. And so it's possible he's thinking about these things. He's thinking, I broke God's law. I am a rebellious person, but God has provided for me. And all of this was kept in the ark with the lid that in the middle of this lid was what was called the mercy seat where God's presence dwelt. And as he begins to think about making this sacrifice in this temple and as you think about the contents of this, a couple of things should come to mind. First is simply this, that most likely we are more wicked than we think we are. I'm more wicked than I think I am. But secondly, I am more loved and valued and cared for than I deserve. And so Jonah is saved in the belly of a big fish. And as he sees the error of his way, or at least the partial error of his way, because we'll see later, he, and he begins to think, uh, to think I, I need to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice. He says, those who cling to the worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, will sh- but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. And I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the, com- and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. You see, Jonah is beginning to see the rebelliousness of his actions. Those who cling to worthless idols, that was him. And he made this terrible decision to run from God. And in this moment, he sees it. And he realizes that salvation comes from the Lord. And it is with this that he is vomited back out onto dry land. An act of God's grace. Because as my good friend Joe Wilson says, well, there was only two ways out, right? And with that, chapter 2 concludes. Now, as we begin to dive into the story of Jonah uh, through this series the next several weeks, I, I want you to see something that I believe is critically important for us to see. See, in this book, there are really two times that Jonah wants to die. Once is in the boat, and the other is in chapter 4 after he preaches to the Ninevites, and they repent. He says this to God. We read some of this before. He says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful, compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn your back from destroying people. Verse 3, this is what he says, Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. 
You see, the first time Jonah wants to die, he's in a boat in his disobedience. And we get that. We understand that. But the second time he wants to die, it's in his obedience. You see, disobedience is easy to see. The second, not so much. You know, Jesus tells the story of a prodigal son's. Says the younger son, he asks for his father's inheritance and he sets off into the far country and he squanders it. And this we see someone who is running from his father in his disobedience. But the, but the older son, the older son, he's running from his father as well. He's just doing it in a whole different fashion that's much harder to recognize. He, he is running from his father in his obedience. People do this, right? He says, God, I did something for you, and now you owe me. Folks, that describes religious people. Religion says, I do something for you, now you owe me. I do good works, and I get into heaven. And the older son, he's more concerned about keeping the rules, and he's less concerned about his father. So let me just ask you this question as we wrap up this morning. Are you running from God? Are you running from God? Because those who are running from God in their obedience see obedience as a tool to make God a means for our end. I did something for you, God, and now you owe me. So we see here that why we obey God. Why we obey God is just as important, if not more, than obeying God. See, God did not want Jonah's sacrifices. He wanted Jonah's heart. Improper motives in your disobedience is just as much running from God as it is those who are completely disobedient. Sin is not outright rebellion. It is begrudging obedience. Let me just say that again. Sin is not just outright rebellion. It's begrudging obedience. Sin is not just unconditional hostility to God. It's conditional obedience to God. See, don't miss this. Jonah did what God wanted him to do, and he still wanted to die. Because Jonah had this paradigm, God, I will obey you if. So what's your if? What would you say, how would you fill in the blank? Because your if is very revealing. Your if is your God. God, I will obey you if you heal me from this disease. God, I will honor you if You help me in my finances. God, I will honor you if you give me that promotion. God, I will honor you if you keep my children from making bad decisions. You see, your if reveals your God. And that God will disappoint you 100% of the time. Because you see, there are two kinds of people that, that walk through the doors of this church. There are those who know they don't deserve God's grace. They don't need some preacher standing up here talking about their sin, 
They're well aware of it. They've been running from God and their disobedience from some, for some time now. They walk through the doors of the church and they're not sure if God will strike them down. But then there are those who walk through the doors of the church who really don't think they need God's grace. They're the obedient type. They're the good person. I don't have any wild stories because I'm a rule follower. They think I do all the right things, therefore God should bless me. Why would God care about the Assyrians? Why would God care about ISIS? That, that's such a foreign concept to them because they can't fathom that after all, God would care about those people because, well, they're sinners. They're rule breakers. But God says, no, no, no. Both the disobedient and the obedient have been running for God for some time. They're both lost. They both need to repent. And they both need to come to me. Folks, you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. He continues to pursue you no matter how far you have tried to run from him. And his desire for you is that you will repent of your sin, that you will turn from your sin, you will turn towards him. You will call upon his name, that you will place your faith in him, that just as Jonah went down, into the belly of a fish for three days. So Jesus Christ was placed in a tomb for three days. And he rose from the grave. Conquering sin and death once and for all. So that all those who are disobedient. And all those who are trying to get what they want out of their obedience. When they come to him they place their faith in him, will live and not perish. No longer have, having to run from the creator of this world. My encouragement to you is that if you've been running from God, either in your disobedience or in your obedience, and you say, this morning, today is the day, I'm ready to repent of that sin and to turn towards Jesus to allow his grace that I don't deserve to cover me and rescue me, that I no longer have to be in opposition to him. I no longer have to run from him, but allow him to rescue me, to, to save me. We'd love to have a conversation with you about that. After the service, I would encourage you. I think Virgil's going to be back at uh, the fork and four um, you know, find someone on staff. We'll, I'll be here afterwards. We would love to begin a conversation uh, with you about what that looks like. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your grace that we don't deserve. Help us, Lord, to, um, to see in our own lives, Lord, the areas where we may be on the run. Lord, convict us in those areas in which uh, we just need to turn to you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word speaks to us and convicts us, but not only does it do all of those things, but Lord, your word gives us a hope. 
because your word reveals to us that there is a savior. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this grace that you give to each and every one of us. We ask all this in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.